Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My November interview is with indie writer Susan Hartland, who writes as S.J. Hartland. We'll discuss the first book in our Shadow series, The 19th Bladesman. And with that, I'll welcome you to New Books Network and Fantasy Podcast. Here's my review of The 19th Bladesman. A rich and complex world of sword-wielding fighters and seductive sorceresses Written in percussive lyrical prose, the 19th Bladesman first introduces us to Kale, the eponymous hero of the novel, when he runs away from the mountain castle where Lord Vraymork tutors him in swordcraft. We learn the eight-year-old Kale is bonded to the battle god Kyr and has been blessed with exceptional strength. In a pattern that's oft to be repeated, Kale's defiance of Raymorg after a verbal tussle propels him into an unsanctioned adventure and exposure to danger. For Kale is a target of those who know of the prophecy of the 19th Bladesman. It is said that if he breaks, disaster will strike all the lands. Raymorg is soon informed of this prophecy as well by a beautiful queen who then beds him. But though he appears stern with Kale, he loves the boy like his own son. Raymorg hopes to protect him, well, as much as a child sworn to serve as a battle god can ever be protected. As the tale winds on, introducing us to island priestesses, dead warriors called night riders, and naturally, a deliciously sadistic usurper king who delights in torture, Kale amasses more and more enemies and some unlikely friends. In a testament to his enduring qualities, Even a noble who tries to kill him eventually becomes an ally. But those who are loyal to Kale will be tested when he faces the biggest challenge of them all. Being taken captive by an ancient, seductive, and cunning god who is as deadly as he is beautiful. I'm going to read a few paragraphs uh, from Kale's account. His lord always put on a particular garment before he rode out to fight. It was black and padded like a quilt. Vraymorg wore it over a linen shirt, but beneath leather armor. Iron and steel were expensive, mostly reserved for blades. It hurt Kale's heart when his lord later gave him the only chain mail in the castle. As a child, Kale would sit upon his lord's bed and watch him dress for battle, a fluttering in his belly. He knew this ritual, shirt, gambeson, leather, would one day be his. There was something in these quiet moments that Kale didn't have a name for, then. He'd watch in awe, wondering if he'd ever be as powerful as the splendid man, longing for the day when he grew old enough to take on a vary or gals at Raymorg's side. He remembered the first time he watched his lord leave for battle, that odd feeling in his little five-year-old body, that fear of Raymorg would not come back. 
Kale stood in a ward with his servants, feeling very small and alone as his lord strode towards his horse and a group of mounted warriors. No, he wrapped his arms about his lord's leg. Oh, you don't want me to go, do you? Graymark, often so stern, so aloof, looked amused. I won't let you. We'll see about that. Braymorg swung his leg in an enormous stride that lifted Kale off the ground. It was so unexpected he laughed. His lord took another big step, then another. Kale held on tightly. He was laughing in delight now, his fear gone. His lord was laughing too, until at last he hoisted Kale up so high and dropped him into his horse's saddle. You can see me out the gate, he said. So, uh, now some information before Susan joins us on the show. She is an emerging epic fantasy writer, journalist, and fencer who watches too much TV, spent too many holidays wandering around remote castles, and loves everything medieval. She is a former Australian Associated Press Finance Editor, University of Queensland and Securities Institute of Australia graduate, who now calls Darling Downs, Queensland, her home. And also, she got a new dog. <laughs> so let's welcome Susan onto the show. Well, Susan, welcome on the show. It's lovely to be here. It's, yes. Um, just had a fabulous storm here, so it's a really, really good night. <laughs> good. I hope everything's calming down. So, uh, not yeah, like, yeah, we've been in drought, so it's nice. Yep. Not nice have some rain. Like your book, which is pretty wild, where there's always weather going on and all varieties of bloodshed, betrayal, and a bit of passion here and there. Uh, a wild storm, you'd say, Gabrielle. Okay. <laughs> I could go with that. That sounds good. <laughs> Say so you've got a wide array of characters in the book, like I mentioned in my review. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the heart of the book is really Kale. Am I saying his name right? Um, well, he's definitely the main protagonist, and I suppose at the heart of the book is his relationship with Bao. I mean, that's sort of a central theme. Fatherhood is definitely a central theme of the book. Um, and letting go of power, which Val has to learn to do, to learn to love. So, yeah, it's kind of shared between them, really, the sort of central focus. Val becomes sort of the main character in the second book, um, but I probably shouldn't jump too far ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So the second book is available for our listeners. So if you like this interview... Um, yeah, the second and the third book are both out, and I'm um, currently working on the fourth. So there should be five all up in the series. And um, uh, today I spent uh, copy editing um, the first book in a different series. Oh. So, yeah, it's been a little bit crazy. <laughs> so first of all, let me pronounce the character's name correctly, since I failed to ask you about that. Is it Kale or Cal? Um, Kale. Kale. Okay. So, uh, one of the things that Kale... But you know what? Like, readers always have um, their kind of their own idea about characters and what they look like and even how 
names are pronounced, so um, I can go with anything. <laughs> it's however the reader perceives it, really. So for reference of our listeners, we will call the main character Kale today. And he comments, okay. there are fates worse than death. What could he mean by that? So I think he's um, quoting something that Val has said to him. And Val, being a character who has lived for many centuries, um, lived um, perhaps a very lonely life. Uh, Val, of course, has his own secrets, which I probably should leave for the second book where they're sort of exposed. Um, But perhaps you could say that Death in some ways would be a relief to Val, given what he suffered over the centuries. So, yeah, I think that's where that's come from. It's, it's sort of something Val said to Kale, and he's recounting an exchange. Well, Kale has a psychological Achilles heel, in my view. Um, what are your mm-hmm. comments about that? I would agree. I would think um, particularly clear in the scenes with Arcanid. Um He uses Kale's uh, need for Val's affection and approval against him. Um, that is definitely Kale's vulnerability. Um, he is seeking a sort of father-son relationship with Val that is you know, not something that Val's easily going to give, given that he's been hurt in the past and has put up shields around his heart. But yeah, you've you've kind of nailed it there. Definitely he has, um, that's his Achilles heel. (laughs) Yes, and he looks different from his people too. He's fair-haired, and it seems like most people are dark-haired. And uh, he does seem that even though he's proud of being a chosen warrior, it also feels very lonely to him. Um, lonely to him. Yeah, though he's quite social. I mean, he has good relations with Arn and, and some of the other men. And, um, uh, so I'm not sure he's totally lonely, but he still is definitely seeking that bond with Val. And it's very important. Um, and there are lessons there in that bond for both of them that they have to learn by the end of the book. And onwards. <laughs> but yes, he is. He's definitely different. What makes Kel so lovable? <laughs> Two central figures, a brother and sister from the islands, have an adversarial mm-hmm. relationship with Kel. Yet in the end, they both regret the pain they've caused him. Yeah, uh, I guess... Um, he has all the traits that you typically find with a heroic sort of character. He's loyal, he's brave, he's resourceful. But I think I also wanted him to be very, very vulnerable. Um, and I think that's probably what readers relate to with Kale. I had some people sort of say, he says cinnamon roll, which is an expression I hadn't heard before, but... <laughs> I understand it now. It was kind of like, you know, stop hurting my cinnamon roll. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can't promise to do that. Um, 
Yeah, so it's, it's, it's vulnerability that makes him very human, I think. And, um, in the scenes with Arcane, I mean, he's, Kale is a warrior. So, you know, what's the worst thing that you could do to a warrior? How do you take away his power? And how does he, um, then deal with having that power taken away? And, and how does that change him? It was, uh, always questioned when I was writing those scenes. Uh, and, at the heart of that is his vulnerability, I think, Gabrielle. And he has kind of a cinnamon roll because he's very sweet to people. He's he's a kind person. That's what I really liked about him. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he is um, He's quite genuine. He's quite honest as well. Well, let's move on to the god Kier, who um, Cal is the sworn warrior of that god. And... Kier lends him exceptional strength, but the trade-off is he and the other warriors often die very young because their life is fighting. Mm-hmm. Now we have uh, mm-hmm. the brother of the god Kier. That's the Arcanin that we've been talking about. He's a god that rules gals who live off the blood of humans. And then we have Gani Jai, who is the god of the Ice Lords, it seems like he's worshipped through the means of a duel to the death between the best warriors. In another place on the islands, heretics are thrown into the water as an offering to the three to be swept away into the waves. So many cultures, and yet every divinity seems to revel in death. What gives? Okay. Well, that's a nice curly question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite conscious of that, um, that theme. Uh, it wasn't a conscious theme, um, when I was writing those gods. But now that you pointed out, I'm not sure that a benevolent sort of god would fit into this world. I mean, it is quite a dangerous, treacherous world. Um, and gods that are a little bit more on the bloodthirsty side, probably a bit more interesting. <laughs> um, and also probably beneath it all, you know, to me, they're, they're always sort of, I call them gods and that's how they're perceived in this world, but really ultimately there's probably just beings with greater power and therefore mm-hmm. they're probably false gods. Um, but yeah, but thank you for finding that theme. <laughs> well, I think you were trying to write dark fantasy with a medieval theme. So in uh, that type of work, there, uh, it's the kind of work designed to keep people at the edge of their seats, and it's not meant to have kindly gods in it. If one is looking for that, one should probably look in another genre. <laughs> Yeah, I think you just put it better than me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always have answers in the back of my mind when I ask these questions. I just like to hear yours. Oh, there you go. (sighs) Well, speaking of gals, uh, what's the difference between a gal and a vampire? Um, Okay, that's another light little curly one. Um, So I didn't want to be restrained by the typical sort of traits of Vampires. I didn't want to sort of stay in the vampire world, but I definitely wanted my villains to be blood drinkers. I mean, there's something sort of mm, gruesome, but also a little bit intimate about 
blood drinkers. Um, it's sort of all sorts of layers you can explore given that blood sort of represents life. So I always wanted them to be like that, but I then wanted to create a slightly different mythology around them. So I've kind of had a, uh, they've got a few vampiric, would that be how you say it, mm. sort of traits, but I didn't want to be closed in by that and I wanted them to be, you know, unique to this world. So their background, which comes out a lot in the third book, um, you know, there's definitely a history of where they're from and how they were created and, um, and what they're like. Yeah, I kind of guessed that because if the god Kier is the one that makes all the warriors that are human and his brother is the head of the gals or vampires, there's a, obviously going to be a backstory there. Yeah, and I think the nice thing about this series for me was that um, I wrote, I think I've written at least three or four practice books and two mm. of them uh, were set in this world and it was specifically Roran books. So I had the backstory and the history of this world kind of written, so it was fairly easy to kind of dip into it if I needed to, to, um, you know, flesh out. Um, I mean, I hope that with the 19th Bladesman that there is a sense of history, that these events are happening after other events, that there's, some, there's, that there's these sort of layers of history that have come before the events of this book. Uh, and having written the history, certainly from uh, a writer's point of view, made it easy to um, dip in and grab bits. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, Arcanin, the god of the cows, <clears throat> is bad news. His main opponent seems to be the ancient seer king of the islands, who I think you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. His name is Roran. Roran. Roran, and he now exists yeah. in the afterworld. So his ancient magic once protected the islands, but it's failing. And he wants to protect the islands mm. and his people by any means. Do you think he's ultimately mm. morally superior to Orkanen? So Roran has a very definite journey across the three books. Um, and I, I don't really want to give too much away, but let's just say... Um, he is the main protagonist of the third book, The Sword Brotherhood. Uh, in the second book, we get to see more of his machinations and his plots and plans. And I think my beta reader for the second book at the end of the second book said, um, I hate Roran so much. He's really bad. Um, he can rot in hell forever as far as I'm concerned. You can torture him for the whole of the third book. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to redeem him. She said, you can't. And then halfway through the third book, she said, okay, he's redeemed. I don't know why I'm on his side, but suddenly I'm on his side now. 
So that was very naughty of you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so he, he definitely has a journey and he has some lessons to learn. I mean, he is very much the, um, uh, what's that dreadful expression about omelettes and eggs? You know, you can't have an omelette without breaking eggs. Mm-hmm. The bigger picture. Yeah. Um, but then what he goes through in the third book, the roar, and at the end of that book makes definite, definitely different decisions to Roran um, of the second and the start of the third book. Ultimately, I mean, he had to be understandable. I think his decisions had to be something that we could understand um, needed to be made, but he definitely changes Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, back to your question. Ultimately, if he is morally superior, I think by the end of the third book he is, but on the journey he is definitely not. (laughs) Okay. So we've got an island princess, uh, one of the many characters, and she gives voice to a recurring motif in this book, the conflict between duty and love. Mm -hmm. She argues with Kale's mentor, and he says, I can't bring myself to love Kale. It's too painful. And and she tells him, mm-hmm. to hell with duty, you need to love. So how does love endanger duty? I guess in that, that instance of Val, I mean, if he let himself care too much about Kale, then how does he let Kale die? Um, Val's duty is to train and prepare bonded warriors, uh, warriors bonded to the gods who, who can uh, fight uh, a Canaan. Basically, if um, if Val lets himself love Kale, then how does he let a young warrior who he loves just go to his death? So ultimately there is a conflict there. But I think everyone in the book is dutiful um, and there are consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, how about yourself? Uh, how did your family upbringing influence you in the choice of themes that you wanted to explore in your series? Okay, well, there's a couple of couple of answers to that. Um, my mother died when I was very young, and my father raised us, so I've always had a very strong sense of fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is definitely one of the themes of the book. I remember my poor dad when he was reading The 19th Bladesman and um, he was reading, you know, sort of Kale yearning for Val's love and he said to my stepmother, was I a bad father? Is this, you know, Susan expressing um, her <laughs> longing for a father or something? And I had to put him straight very quickly and say, no, it's exactly the opposite. It's because you were such a a good father um, that I have a very strong sense of what a good father looks like. Mm -hmm. And thus the theme of fatherhood was very important. And um, I guess the other thing I could say to that question would be, you know, we were talking a little bit in emails. I think I mentioned to you that I came from a long line of Methodists on both sides of the family. I think mm-hmm. my parents even met at the Methodist church. And um, so we always had, uh, we Methodists, we're very good at guilt. 
So I've always had an interest in guilt and shame and, and things like that. And that's those sort of darker emotions are things that I've explored in all my books, I think, because there's a reverse to that. If you have these darker emotions, then you also have hope. You also have uh, redemption, which is a very strong thing for me, for a lot of the characters. Um, so without the darker ones, you don't get these shades of light or the characters growing and learning to forgive and um, learning to let down their shields and love. Yeah, at the end of the first book, there are a lot of characters, some of which we haven't even talked about that really <laughs> need redemption. So it's going to be interesting There's to see. You need redemption, yep. Are you thinking Heath? <laughs> I'm thinking Heath. His sister seems all right, but Heath, the ice lord, who's basically spending his whole time during a book just to look for a fighter who can give him a good run for the money before Heath skewers him and throws him down into the coals. Yep, and there is a wonderful, you know, that left me a wonderful opportunity to second book to write that actual <laughs> fire dance, mm -hmm. which was heaps of fun. I have to say he's just the most fun character to write because he's so sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, you've written quite a few books, and uh, we could say you're an indie writer who's done well. Uh, your use of language is very skilled. Your books are properly edited. You've got nice covers. You have a lot of fans on Goodreads. So for any uh, hopeful writers who are out there who may want to self-publish, tell us a bit about your strategy for success in a very crowded market. Um, okay. Um, so I guess I always knew that I was going to have to um, do it myself. Uh, in Australia, no traditional publisher was going to pick up a first-time author writing books that they're 170,000 words each. I mean, they're, they're big books. Um, so given that, I just sort of tried to acquire as much knowledge as I could. So do all the Mark Dawson courses, anything else I can get my hands on and read and just learn about the indie world and um, uh, just take on board as much information as possible so I guess that would kind of be my advice to anyone is just, you know, make sure you arm yourself with a lot of knowledge. Um, I guess I also like just tried to write the book, the books that only I can write, which um, there's a little bit of a story to that, Gabrielle, in that many years ago, I was a really early reader of George R. R. Martin before anyone had heard of Game of Thrones and I was mm -hmm. reading these books, I remember on the train coming home from work in Sydney and going, what am I doing writing fantasy? Look at this guy, the breadth, the depth of what he's doing. Yeah, you know, go write crime or something. And um, then I read something in a Queensland Writers uh, Centre magazine. And I don't know, I can't attribute it to someone because I don't remember who said it, but it was basically you write the book that only you can write. And I remember sitting down and thinking, well, what does that mean? You know, not what do I have over George R. Martin, nothing, but what am I? Well, I'm a fencer, so I can write sword fights. 
Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. I've studied a lot of medieval history. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. You said you were something, but I didn't catch what you described yourself as. Oh, I'm sorry, a fencer. So I, a uh, fencer, yes, of course, so yes. Many, many years, yeah. Yeah, so that is ultimately very useful when you're writing sort of medieval fantasy. Um, it's good to know you sort of parries from your, your thrusts and things. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's where that phrase came from, write the book that only you can write. Sort of particularly useful. There's something very distinctive about your language. It has kind of a propulsive thrust and rhythm to it. I feel like I could probably mm. recognize your work if you wrote under a different name, just by the the way the oh, sentences are you. structured. Yeah, I, I do actually structure sentences based on rhythm. Um yeah, thank you for picking that up. That's, that's amazing. Um, I will actually write something, um, and I'll know that the rhythm has to be da 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 or something. And it's kind of, I'll know that's the rhythm that I want. And then the words kind of have to fit the rhythm sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I actually, yeah. Um, do you so read it's it? Probably out- a combination of, do I read it out loud? Uh-huh. Uh, I, sometimes. Um, but being a journalist by trade, <laughs> um, I remember my first draft of these books, there weren't many adjectives. And, um, because I sort of thought adjectives were a bit evil, because, mm-hmm. you know, being a, a wire service journalist, it's like really sharp, short, um, uh, clean sort of writing was what you, you were after. And I was mentored by a wonderful woman called Dr. Catherine Heyman. And I remember I sent my first 100 pages to her and there was a little curly section in there with um, some description of something. And, you know, I was looking at it going, oh, look at those adjectives there. Oh, bad, bad, bad. And she's going, oh, this is really lovely. I like that. And my brain's kind of going, oh, hang on. Adjectives are good. Let's put more adjectives in. So... Um, but this sort of combination of, um, at the core, journalists sort of, uh, quite trying for direct, um, writing, but my writing's kind of evolved, I think, to the, uh, you know, much more rhythmical and, um, I was going to say flowery, but that's not quite the right yeah, word. Yeah, it's not flowery. But anyway. Yeah, um, but definitely more descriptive than it was initially. Yeah. I mean, you learn to write by writing, don't you? So mm-hmm. your writing's always changing. Well, it's a good thing. It it's a good thing you were able to make the transition. My husband, who doesn't listen to my shows, thank goodness, is a journalist and he tried writing fiction and I was just like, uh, this is not engaging the reader. <laughs> But it's but yeah. I'm telling the story. It's like well, yeah. not not for readers. You're not. You're telling a story for a newspaper audience. So yeah, you've definitely done a crossover. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely different different rules. And um, that it was lovely having a mentor because Catherine did teach me uh, a lot of things that um, you know. I guess journalists always think that 
think that we can write, but she kind of taught me all the things that I didn't know, which turned out to be quite a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you say you're working on a new series now, or you just started copy editing uh, the first book, was that correct? Yeah, I just got the copy edit back. Yeah, I just got the copy edit back on that, so I'm just going through... Um, going through uh, the pages and just seeing what the copy editors noted. Um, I'm hoping to have that out by December. So, so here, yeah, it's um, here are that authors who are hoping to be published, even indies, get a copy editor because if your book is published and it's full of errors, which you haven't caught, does it make a good impression? And Susan's is error-free. So, <laughs> yeah, it's. Imp- I think it's important to have like a development edit. Like that's where the editor points out any sort of structural issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, for the latest one, uh, you know, she'll point out a couple of um, plot holes, and then you go back and you might need to write a couple of new chapters. Um, or just uh, rephrase a few things so that some questions she's asked are answered. Um, and then it goes to the copy editor, so they're looking more at center structure and um, just your, your word and phrasing. And um, sometimes, you know, I kind of disagree with the copy editor, you know, just because of my style. But... Um, I'll take on board most of what she says. And then ultimately, when you've gone through all those stages, then you get it proofread, of course. So, yeah, there's a lot of editing. (laughs) That's right. Well, we'll let you get back to your busy schedule, but thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Gabrielle. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to indie writer Susan Hartland, who writes as S.J. Hartland. We've been discussing the first book in our Shadow Sword series, The Nineteenth Bladesman. Join me in December when I chat with author Evan Winter about the second in his Africa-inspired series, The Fires of Vengeance, a follow-up to his well-received The Rage of Dragons. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Brona's Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. That's at Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U. Till next time.